Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Stevenson Harwood Employment Law Team. I'm Natalie Edwards, an associate in Stevenson Harwood's International Employment Law Team, and I'm joined by my colleague Serena Folks, a senior associate in our team. Welcome, Serena. Great to be joining you, Natalie. Today, we're discussing three hot topics we think will be important for 2022. These are the menopause and the workplace, changes to the law surrounding sexual harassment and flexible working. So let's kick off with our first key topic, the menopause and the workplace. This is such a topical issue at the moment, but why? Clearly the menopause isn't something new. That's right. And I think there are a number of reasons why our listeners may have noticed this issue cropping up in mainstream press, as well as more specialist HR publications. First, we've seen the House of Commons Women and Equalities Committee launch an inquiry entitled An Invisible Cohort, Why Are Workplaces Failing Women Going Through Menopause? As the background to the inquiry sets out, almost a million women in the UK have left jobs as a result of menopausal symptoms. As many will know, common symptoms can include fatigue, hot flushes, insomnia, difficulty concentrating, forgetfulness, anxiety, depression, mood swings and panic attacks. With menopause mainly affecting those in their late 40s and early 50s, this leads to women eligible for senior management roles leaving work at the peak of their careers with knock-on effects on workplace productivity and the gender pay gap. So the inquiry aims to scrutinise existing legislation and workplace practices and ask if enough is being done to address the issue. Alongside the launch of the inquiry, we've seen more celebrities speaking out about their experience, such as Davina McCall's Channel 4 series Sex, Myths and the Menopause. And the more the topic is discussed, the less taboo it becomes. Finally, as it becomes a part of the public discourse, we are seeing increasing numbers of women taking their employers to tribunal, referencing the menopause at the centre of their unfair dismissal and sex discrimination claims. Recent data shows that in 2018 there were only five employment tribunal cases related to menopause, whereas there were double that number in the first half of 2021 alone, and the number of cases is expected to increase. So employers are aware they need to address how menopause is dealt with in their workplaces, or they might see themselves facing legal claims. So Natalie, can you tell us what kind of legal claims they could be facing? Well, the menopause is not specifically protected under the Equality Act 2010. However, if an employee is treated unfairly because of the menopause, this may amount to discrimination on the grounds of one or more protected characteristics, such as sex, age and disability. Employers should also be aware that non-binary, trans and intersex people may also experience the menopause should not be discriminated against. Sex discrimination may occur, for example, where an employer treats a woman's menopausal symptoms less seriously than it would a male employee's health condition when considering performance in a performance management process. Sex discrimination may be the most obvious claim, alongside age discrimination, which is likely to arise in a menopause context, given it primarily affects people within a certain age bracket. But there is also disability discrimination. The Equality Act 2010 defines disability as a physical or mental impairment which has a substantial and long-term, at least 12 months, adverse effect on an individual's ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities. Although the menopause is not classed as a disability in and of itself, employment tribunals have accepted that severe menopausal symptoms can amount to disability, but it will be assessed on a case-by-case basis. Employers have a duty to make reasonable adjustments where they are aware or should reasonably be aware of an employee's disability. In the context of menopause as a disability, this may mean adjustments to the working environment, for example, increased ventilation or desk fans, changes to sickness policies where absence is due to menopausal symptoms, or adjustments to flexible working approaches where particular arrangements will assist those experiencing certain symptoms. 
As with all forms of discrimination, employers should also be aware of indirect discrimination claims in the event they have policies or practices that appear to be neutral, but which would disadvantage those who are suffering from menopausal symptoms. For example, performance policies, which whilst applied across the entire workforce, may disadvantage those with menopausal symptoms such as forgetfulness or concentration issues, and may be indirectly discriminatory. Moving away from discrimination, employers need to also consider their duties under health and safety legislation. Employers have a legal duty to ensure the health and safety of their employees. Menopausal employees, in particular those suffering from severe symptoms, may need adjustments to their working conditions to help with their well-being and health. Finally, if an employer fails to appropriately respond or support an employee going through the menopause, there is always a risk that the employer's actions or inactions may result in a breach of trust and confidence and the employee may feel forced to resign and subsequently bring a constructive dismissal claim. So there's clearly a lot of different legal risks relating to menopause and the workplace. Serena, do you have any tips on what employers can do? Yes. So in our view, the top three practical steps an employer can take are, number one, raise awareness and provide training. Employers should train their employees and line managers on what the menopause is and how it affects individuals. Two, introduce a menopause policy. We recommend employers should consider creating a menopause policy, setting out the employer's approach to dealing with workplace issues relating to the menopause. Such a policy could encourage open conversations between managers and staff about the menopause, as well as detailing any support and adjustments which can be offered to further assist employees. Thirdly, we recommend risk assessments are undertaken. In line with an employer's health and safety obligations, they should consider risk assessments that consider the needs of menopausal staff. Adjustments to the workplace such as providing desk fans, good ventilation, natural light and access to quiet spaces, as well as other adjustments, may well help those suffering from menopausal symptoms. Our prediction is that during 2022, we'll continue to see more cases in the Employment Tribunal referencing the menopause at the centre of the claims. We'll also wait to see the outcome of the Women's and Equalities Committee's inquiry and what impact this has on employers. In 2022, we expect to see more and more employers introducing menopause policies and providing training to their staff. Thanks, Serena. Now on to our second key topic for 2022, changes to the law around sexual harassment. As you will know, in 2021, the UK government published its long-awaited response to its consultation on measures to combat sexual harassment in the workplace and strengthen existing legal protections. A key part of the response points towards legislative changes in the pipeline, and whilst we don't know exact timing and if these will be introduced during the course of 2022, employers should at least be aware of these forthcoming changes. First is the new proactive duty to prevent sexual harassment. The government intends to introduce legislation which requires employers to take positive proactive steps to prevent sexual harassment. Currently, employers are under no proactive duty to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. However, if an incident has taken place and an individual makes a claim, an employer will potentially be liable unless it can show it took all reasonable steps to prevent the sexual harassment. So the current legislation is reactive rather than proactive. Under this reformulation of existing laws, an employer would still be required to take reasonable steps, as they are now, assuming they will want to be able to defend any claims, but could potentially be liable for failing to take preventative action without the need for an incident to have even occurred. The scope of this new duty will be clarified by a statutory code of practice developed by the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Many employers advocated that the steps should be explicitly outlined, but the government view is that this would remove the flexibility to take a proportionate approach, so it looks as if employers will have to navigate their own path rather than following a step-by-step guide. 
But what's taking all reasonable steps involve? Well, this will vary according to an employer's size and resources. The government wants to motivate employers to put in place practices and policies which respond to the needs of their specific organisation rather than creating a checkbox exercise. In practice, this means a greater onus on larger employers with greater resources. It is sensible for employers to start thinking about policies and employee training in this so that they're well prepared for the forthcoming changes. Importantly, the government response does not state whether the preventative duty will apply to all forms of harassment under the Equality Act 2010 or whether protections against sexual harassment will be elevated over and above other forms of harassment. The original consultation paper referred to discussing options that would apply equally to all forms of harassment, but further clarity on this point is awaited. The second key outcome of the consultation is the legal protection against third-party harassment. The government intends to reintroduce protections against third-party harassment in the workplace. Historically, employers could be liable for harassment of their employees by third parties in the workplace, for example a customer or a supplier, but this was repealed in 2013. It remains unclear in what form this protection will be reintroduced, but the government has confirmed that it will introduce the defence of having taken all reasonable steps in response to such a claim. There is no current indication if it will be a proactive duty. Again, the response is vague on whether the new duty will apply to all forms of harassment or just the sexual harassment, and the timing is equally vague, being when parliamentary time allows. The final point we wanted to flag was the possibility of extending the time limit to bring Equality Act claims. The government has said it will closely look at extending the time limit to bring all claims under the Equality Act, not just sexual harassment, from three months to six months. The government stated that if an extension was to be introduced, they think a time limit of six months would be appropriate. This is in recognition of the need to strike a balance of ensuring access to justice after a potentially traumatising event, while minimising the potential negative impact on employers. Any extension will lead to an increase in employer liability and also start to limit the reliability with which those involved can recall events and the availability of documents and witnesses. Employers should think about those exiting businesses via a settlement agreement and including an ongoing assistance clause as standard so that their employees are required to assist in the face of any claims. Any extension in time limit is also likely to see an increase in the number of claims filed. The government is conscious of existing tribunal delays exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic and the need to first return the tribunal to previous levels of service before additional loading is added. This may not be forthcoming anytime soon. Given these upcoming changes, employers should get ahead of this and start to consider their harassment policies and the training they provide to their staff. With the continuing spotlight on sexual harassment, we think this will be a key focus in 2022. Finally, we couldn't finish the podcast without mentioning the undoubtedly hot topic of flexible working. We expect this to continue to be a key issue businesses grapple with in 2022, and importantly, there are changes on the horizon in this area. In September 2021, the government launched a flexible working consultation called Make Flexible Working the Default. The consultation sets out five proposals for reshaping the existing regulatory framework to better support the objective of making flexible working the default. In summary, it considers making the right to request flexible working a day one right, whether the business reasons for refusing a request all remain valid, requiring the employer to suggest alternatives if they plan to refuse a request, the administrative process underpinning the right to request for flexible working, and the right to request a temporary flexible arrangement. It's important to remember that despite the title of the consultation, Make Flexible Working the Default, The consultation is only considering making the right to request the default and not the right to actually work flexibly. 
One of the key proposals is making the right to request flexible working a day one right, meaning from the first day of employment, any employee can make such a request. This is a significant change from the current legislation, which requires an employee to have at least 26 weeks continuous service, or around six months, to make a flexible working request. If the government does decide to make such a change, this means employers will need to be considering flexibility much earlier on in the process when taking on new recruits. In relation to new roles, it may not be clear as to whether the role will work on a flexible basis, and it may be that conversations are held prematurely and without any real knowledge as to whether and how the arrangement would work, possibly leading to conflict at an early stage of the employment relationship. An introduction of the day one right may result in other changes, such as a lengthening of probationary periods. For example, where a new recruit would have previously been in the office full-time, it may have been easier for a manager to assess their performance and ability and make a decision about their future employment within a fairly short probationary period, say three months. Where an employee works remotely, the employer may need more time to assess their suitability and hence introducing a longer probationary period. In any event, regardless of the consultation, and we don't have a time frame as to when we can expect a government response, businesses are already being forced to deal with these issues, and given the current recruitment crisis, they may be under pressure to accommodate more flexibility than they would ideally envisage. We predict flexible working will continue to be a key topic in 2022. These are just three of the many employment law topics that are on the horizon for 2022. As always, we'll continue to keep you updated on the latest legal developments, And remember to look out for our e-alerts and future podcasts, which can be found on our new Employment Law Hub at www.employmentlawweb.com. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you for listening.